Hello and welcome to episode 137 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here with the always cheery and full of sunshine. Jason Rabinowitz, sorry, I was waiting for a cue. That didn't sound right. <laughs> we got a review that said uh, Jason's a, a grumpy pants. I, I don't remember that and, being the case and at all we, in the last episode. We went through the last episode and said, what, where? Um, I don't know. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. The last one so, was mostly uh, all good news. It was, or, yeah, it was or good. Just news. Yeah, we, yeah, there was nothing to be to be grumpy or, or ungrumpy uh, about, as the case may be. But you've taken your vitamin D, you've turned on your sun lamp, and you are a, a, a Raring to go today. Is that correct? Yeah, maybe, maybe they, they just didn't like how I, I don't like AHA and think it's a good business plan. Maybe maybe it was the CEO of AHA. <laughs> no, because it was very clear that he didn't have strong feelings about AHA one way or the other. Oh, right, right, right. Nobody cares about that. So, we'll start somewhere else today. We have a good show for you today. We have a lot to get through. And we have Max Tremaine on in a little bit. He is the co-founder and CEO of Sherpa, which is a company that has developed the ability to make traveling over international borders a bit more seamless and then was thrown into a pandemic and said, okay, we'll see what we can do. So we're going to talk with him about what they've been seeing as far as travel restrictions now that the, the US is opening especially and, and how things are going there. All that a little bit later in the show. We begin with news that it, this will shock regular listeners, news that broke before we recorded for the week. Yeah, this is a weird change, but it happens from time to time. I think one out of every 10 major news pieces that we cover happens just before we record. Rather that's than just that's after. true. That's true. Or or it happens at, at some point and then something else happens, of course, right after we, we record it. But this is this is fairly big news coming out today. We're recording the 10th of November, Wednesday. Let's back up a few days first before we get to what came out today. A few days ago, uh, the end of last week and over the weekend, Boeing's board of directors agreed to settle a lawsuit brought by shareholders against the board related to their oversight of the development of the 737 MAX. That lawsuit will be settled for $237.5 million. The money will be paid to Boeing by the board of directors insurers. The board of directors admits no liability in this case, and then everything is done, I guess. That was one of the one of the ones that I hadn't really been paying all that much attention to. But you know, a couple hundred million here, a couple hundred million there. Pretty soon we're talking about real money. Uh, yeah, the interesting thing insurance here, anyway, so who cares? Right. So so the interesting thing here is that it's it's insurance money that is being paid to Boeing because the lawsuit was brought by shareholders of Boeing stock against the board of directors. Interestingly, I'm reading this on the Wall Street Journal, the lead plaintiffs in the case are those who actually brought up the lawsuit. was actually the New York State Comptroller and he oversees the New York State and local retirement system and the Fire and Police Pension Association of Colorado. So these are basically retirement funds, public retirement funds, who had, I'm guessing, a large amount of stock in Boeing. And they were the but the uh, the ones who actually brought up the lawsuit against Boeing. So I think that's a very interesting piece of information. Yeah, I mean the, these institutional investors are always, you know, kind of the the lead on on these types of lawsuits. And I think until that news comes out, you, you don't really think that these pension funds that have existed for for years and years, especially public employee pension funds, have huge, huge piles of money to move around and and really make influential investments. And so when something like this happens with, like you said, probably a very large investment in Boeing stock, it you know it becomes a quite a big deal, and in this case, a, a two hundred and thirty-seven point five million dollar deal. The bigger news, at least to my mind, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a legal scholar anymore, and I don't have a, a very good handle on uh, board of directors and insurance payments. But to the layman, 
this is a bigger deal in my mind. Boeing and the all but two families from Ethiopian Flight 302 entered into a settlement agreement. They they went to court today to file that, and that agreement is very interesting. First, Boeing accepts sole responsibility for the crash. And so this takes away liability from the subdivision of Rockwell Collins that manufactured the angle of attack sensor and from Rockwell Collins itself, which designed the software, but it designed the, the MCAS software to, to Boeing's specifications. So, so Boeing gave them specifications. Rockwell Collins built the software, and, and that was that. So Boeing accepts sole responsibility for the crash, so that takes liability away from them. It also takes away the blame that could be apportioned to the Ethiopian pilots in, in any That's litigation. That's a big one. A real um, big one. So if Boeing hadn't accepted sole responsibility for the crash, they could still then claim um, the pilots of the aircraft contributed uh, in some way to the crash, and therefore they are in some way responsible for compensating the families. Boeing in this agreement says we accept sole responsibility uh, for for the crash. It was not anybody else. It was not any of our suppliers or or software de- design suppliers, and it was not the pilots. The pilots did not contribute to this this crash. the The agreement also creates a process, which will be a very long process for claims from the families. It avoids punitive damages and the families will get compensatory damages through this claims process. And that will be based on the compensatory damages allowed under Illinois law, Boeing being nominally or or legally a Chicago-based company. Illinois law will will take over where this goes. What Boeing could have done is said, well, this crash was in Ethiopia. A majority of the people on board were were Ethiopian and therefore their laws should dictate how compensation is is made to to the families. And that likely would have resulted in a much lower uh, amount of compensation to all of the families than they would get if the process takes place in in Illinois or is based on Illinois law. So that is the oh the last thing is that there any trial about damages is limited to compensatory damages and the jury cannot hear about punitive damages and discovery future discovery of any wrongdoing from Boeing in this particular case is limited based on they can't continue discovery to find out if Boeing did anything else wrong is my understanding. And Jason being our our chief legal correspondent, perhaps you can enlighten me a little bit more on on what exactly that means. Yeah, well, that's right. Reading from Dominic Gates in the Seattle Times, he explains that he pulls a quote from the filing and says, the defendant Boeing has admitted that it produced an airplane that had an unsafe condition that was a proximate cause of plaintiff's compensatory damages caused by Ethiopian Flight 302 accident. That's really as close as we're probably ever going to get to Boeing admitting fault. It admitted that the aircraft had an unsafe condition and was the actual cause for what happened. Unfortunately, it doesn't go as far as explaining what the conditions within the Boeing company was to lead to the decisions that led to the unsafe design. But um, at this point, all but two of the families have agreed to this settlement and it closes the door to much, much higher fines being levied against Boeing. So those punitive damages, which could be exponentially higher than what they're already on the hook for, is basically off the table. I guess except for these two families, we, we don't know much about that at, that's, at this point. But this really kind of closes the book on, on the compensation due to the families of the Ethiopian crash. Yeah, it, it closes the book on that. And then it closes the book on finding out the root cause of how MCAS came to be and and how the the unsafe condition, as Boeing itself says, came to be. Will we find out eventually? Probably. I assume that there will be a very, very well-written book at some point. 
how long oh, it yeah. takes for that book to eventually come out. That's, I, I think, an open-ended question. But I think we'll learn eventually. But we won't be learning it from this particular set of lawsuits. But it's very interesting that both of these lawsuits are settled within just a few days of each other and how one kind of flows into the other where the insurance companies have paid out to shareholders after uh, basically they prove that Boeing's board, maybe not prove, but they allege that Boeing's board let this happen. And at the same time, we have another lawsuit that was settled that Boeing actually takes responsibility and sole responsibility for the crash. So very interesting that both of these would happen to be settled in the same week. And they're very complementary events. Yeah, for sure. The COP26 global climate, the UN global climate conference, the the splashy events with heads of state and, and lots of people making speeches and things like that, that all happened last week. This week is kind of the, the sub- heading where you have secretaries of transport and energy and and things of that nature working with their staffs trying to actually come up with a plan to decarbonize well everything and find a find a new way forward being a commercial aviation focused podcast i think what we can can look at is the the new aviation climate action plan that came out from the uh, department of transportation in the us this week uh, interesting for its i guess codification of everything we've already talked about yeah it's kind of like a cheat sheet for everything that's been talked about in this space for years now just condensed into one place of a summary that basically says we need to do something. Right, right. And I think it's very interesting because we talked about all of the things that would actually move decarbonization of aviation forward. And we've been talking about them on this podcast for for a few years now, probably beginning with sustainable aviation fuel and moving into kind of alternative propulsion systems and things like that. Um, but the the yeah, like Jason says, it, it's a cheat sheet for everything we've already talked about. I'll, I'll run quickly through the uh, you know kind of bullet pointed introductions. Introduce more efficient aircraft to operational fleets as quickly as possible to replace less efficient aircraft. So basically, buy a new 30, 737 to replace your old 737. That one's and basically a non-starter. And, uh, I mean, that that happens anyway. Well, it, it's Yeah, I mean, great that it's listed. I feel like it's one of those – that's one of the things where you list it because the assignment said that you needed to have three – you know, you, you need to have three supporting ideas on the writing prompt. It's something they, they like, can uh, check off immediately after writing it because they're already right, doing it. Right. We're, we're already doing this. Okay. Keep, keep up the good work. Development of new, more energy efficient aircraft and engine technologies by OEMs. Of course, they're going to do that. It sells more planes to make it cheaper to operate the plane for the airline. That, that's I'll already happening. I'd love to sell more planes. <laughs> All right. Done. Improvements in aircraft operations through the national airspace system by the US government and by airlines flying more optimal trajectories for reduced fuel use and contrail impacts. That's already happening. But like we talked about two months ago from the US Summit, that needs to happen faster and it needs to happen better. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit that air navigation service providers and airlines can work on together to, to make that happen as quickly as possible. So a Production. lot of moving parts. That's the yeah. big one. It's just yeah. it's getting every government and air traffic management company to cooperate and do the things they need to do. That's a, that's a difficult one. I mean, difficult, but not impossible. You know, it's there's certainly some concrete steps that can can be taken. Production of sustainable aviation fuels, okay. Electrification and potentially hydrogen solutions for short haul aviation, okay. Working on that one. Advancements in airport operations across the United States. I don't even okay. know what that one means. That's that a basically for everything. Mean, yeah, it is a catch all for everything. I think, um, and it, if you dig into the actual report, link in the show notes, et cetera, et cetera, you get they want to electrify taxis move the powering of airports to to more sustainable power sources and things like that. All okay. good stuff, but stuff that's already um, happening. <laughs> international initiatives such as the airplane CO2 standard and Corsia, which uh, stands for what does it stand for? Carbon offsetting and reduction scheme for international aviation. That was the ICAO 
project that has been put into force. Domestic policies and measures to help meet emission targets, okay. Support for research into climate science-related aviation impacts, okay. That it took this long to come up with a list of things that are already happening with no, and here's the money to do it, irks me. I'm irked, Jason. You are irked, and you, you, you irked. are right to be irked, but there, there's a... A chart that's oddly in this document a couple times on page six to begin with that really charts out nicely where we are now and where we will be depending on which pieces of this are done. And I know this is a podcast and you can only hear me. You can't see what I'm looking at, but I'll do my best to explain it. Basically, if we do nothing, if we continue flying the 737 and the A320 on regular regular fuels as we do today, pushed by a diesel-powered tug and terminals with a diesel-powered bus, we will continue to climb in CO2 emissions up, up, up forever until the planet burns and everyone's dead. That's not a good solution. Um, not a good one at all. Just under that, which basically does nothing at all, is airline fleet renewal. So that's replacing an A320 Neo, an A320 CO with a Neo or a, an NG with a Max. Again, it's something, but we're talking, you know, two five percent reduction in, in emissions up until 2050. Not doing much. New aircraft diffusion trajectory, which is, I think, again, replacing aircraft and fleets with newer, more modern aircraft, something like the 777X, doesn't really register. New aircraft tech. This is the one I thought that was most interesting. So new aircraft technology is likened to aircraft powered by batteries or possibly hydrogen. And it really it's not really written here, but it it seems like battery powered and hydrogen powered aircraft are almost being written off as we are now as the technology is progressing because the technology is just not there. Um, battery power just can't supply the energy needed to replace current aircraft. The same for hydrogen-powered aircraft, that the energy density is not there. So, if the technology doesn't take a, a radical turn and improve dramatically in the next few years, it's not really going to have much of an impact. Sure, you might see small regional jets or private aircraft, hydrogen or battery-powered, but your 777 replacement or your A350 replacement, that's just not going to happen. Right below that, operational improvement is such a small piece of the puzzle that it, it barely registers. And then you have SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, which is doing almost all of the heavy lifting here. So if there is a 50% emissions reduction, that would get us maybe a little bit below 2019 emissions level at, by 2050. But if we were to shift all flights to 100% SAF, by 2050, we would be at technically zero CO2 emissions. And there's a whole host of, I would say, complications with that because SAF production itself is not always green. It's not always technically sustainable. It, it comes from somewhere. It has to be grown or it has to come from waste products. But that it really seems like the, the actual conclusion of this document is that the only way forward at this point with the technology available is sustainable aviation fuel. Everything else is basically icing on the cake. Yeah, I mean that that is a and we will put a, a link to the to the full report in the show notes and and highlight the the chart that Jason's talking about because it does make a couple appearances. That's a, a very succinct description of of what we're seeing, of of what we're looking at. At least as far as this report goes, there's a lot of good stuff in it. And I think the the best thing about the report, having gone through it, is really the the pointing to the research that that kind of the report wants to be wrong, I think, or or wants to to be pet more pessimistic than is is warranted, I hope. Maybe as a under promise over deliver kind of thing. But I I guess uh I guess we'll see where where we go from here. Let's pause 
take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk with Max Tremaine, who is the co-founder and CEO of Sherpa, uh, to talk about travel restrictions, what they're seeing, and how things are are reopening as, as the US reopens and as people start moving around the world a little bit more freely once again. Uh, so stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are joined this week with a, a very timely uh, chat with the co-founder and CEO of Sherpa, Max Tremaine. Max, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, and thanks for having me. Hey, Max. Good to talk with you. So I asked you to give me kind of a, a, a one-sentence description of, of what Sherpa does, and, and you said, we make it easy to cross borders. And certainly, that's one of the hardest things to do right now. So it, it seems like you you guys are probably pretty busy. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like, yeah, we've had really interesting time, you know, the timing. We started the company a couple of years ago, just based on the experience that myself and my co-founder Ivan had had, having a tough time crossing borders. We kind of really got the, the first product out into the world and, and working basically months before all of the the big lockdowns started. And yeah, like a, during the COVID lockdown era, usage of our product is, is just skyrocketed. So it, it, it's, been, it's been an interesting couple of years for sure. So, so what does Sherpa actually do and, and how does it help me make it easier to cross a border? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, it's, it's kind of in two parts. So one part of our product is informing travelers about what they need to cross a border. And this is something that's always existed for us. Like pre-COVID, this would tell you like, you know, you're a Brit going to Turkey, you need your, your, need your passport, you need a Turkish e-visa. It was a really simple thing and you could just kind of drop an element anywhere and it would, it would tell travelers based on a, a corridor what they needed. That product, has, that part of the product has ballooned considerably, now includes you know, quarantine requirements, now vaccination requirements, stuff like that. And the other part of the product is the actionable piece. So it's like, once I know that I need these documents, what do I do? Uh, we've had a really interesting trend, the underlying trend that has really enabled us the most is the move toward electronic travel visas. So what we do is we, you know, th through a, a set of integration tools, take some info about a traveler, turn it into an electronic travel visa. So, you know, you can you can kind of go from planning a trip, not knowing anything about what you need, to understanding all the different things you'll need, to actually fulfilling some of them in a very straightforward way using the tools that you already use to book your trips. So you get out the, the first product, which you have no intention, you know, in in the front or back or, or sides of your mind to be, you know, listing quarantines and vaccination records and, and things like that. You're, you get you have this product out for a few months, and then all of a sudden, COVID hits and the world shuts down. Did you find yourself going, now what do we do? You know, no one's traveling internationally? Or did you think to yourself immediately, okay, this is something that, that we're kind of already set up to deal with. We just need to list something else. We had made our mission really clear. You know, like we, we knew that we wanted to make it easy for people to cross borders. Like, you know, we had this, this kind of one of our like foundational ideas was that like the most impactful experiences in people's life are to do with travel, but then also the most anxiety ridden parts of people's life have to do with travel. And we're like, if we can just reduce the anxiety, you know, we can really improve people's lives. So, so we kind of knew that that was our broad mission. And, and like you said, we had this product already, like we can't, we can't do the kind of selling visas part of our product without informing people about what they need. But, you know, like you said, basically overnight, the crux of kind of how we were selling our products to travel platforms and airlines changed really quickly. It was like one day we were like, hey, you know, you can, you can sell visas as an ancillary product. You can make sure people have what they need to get on a plane. Uh, you know, it's going to save money, make money. Uh, it's this great thing to like, hey, no one knows where they can go. <laughs> it's going to be useful to inform them about that. And then it was pretty clear at the start that when reopenings did happen, we didn't know what the form of the new rules were going to be, but there were going to be loads of new rules. And that's that's definitely played out. So yeah, 
Yeah, loads of new rules to keep up with is is definitely something that's resonating. I'm just going to Stockholm for the Flight Radar 24th now annual, I guess since we're resuming holiday party. The rules have changed since I booked that flight like three times already. So just keeping up with that one trip, you're right, is just anxiety inducing to no end because it's it's one rule for vaccinated travelers one rule for non-vaccinated travelers the u.s is treated separately and different because they were retaliating against our ban and now that that's lifted they've lifted our ban and it is just an absurd amount of seemingly always changing information to convey to passengers these days as if e-visas and regular visas wasn't difficult enough where does this information come from that you're sharing with with airlines and, and other travel companies? Is this, is this something that you're collating by yourselves? Is there some sort of clearinghouse that you that you get or or how does that all work? So we do this stuff in-house. It's one of the strengths of our team and part of our ability to move so quickly during this period is that we were doing everything in-house. You know, it, typically travel rules in, in, a, in a kind of travel company context has been like a curation problem where it's like, hey, you know, I know where to find the information. I'll, you know, try to put it in a form that people can understand or that I can have this kind of comprehensive set of rules to look at. We, we took a technical approach. Um, you know, we're, we're a kind of tech company all the way through. It's large part engineers. And and what we had built was basically a, a set of what we call monitors to look out for signals to change in uh, travel policies. And, you know, you'd be surprised where some of this information comes from. Like, you know, we get info from news releases, social channels, communication channels. You know, we generally try when we're working with, you know, airlines and airports to get some sort of visibility into what people are seeing on the ground. And yeah, we also use kind of government sources generally as well. But yeah, stuff stuff that's kind of static goes out of date really quickly. So, you know, we're in the height of the pandemic, we were doing, you know, hundreds of changes an hour uh, across the whole scope of uh, the stuff that we covered. It's it's not that big anymore, but still, you know, if, if you want to keep up on, you know, one destination's uh, policies, it can be difficult. We track uh, more than 250. Uh, including you know states uh, so it's uh it's yeah you know our our model has has definitely been validated during this period so you're not only making changes based on official sources you're anticipating changes based on the chief health officer of uh, I'm based in Chicago so so Illinois chief health officer posts something on Twitter and you're thinking to yourself okay that's signaling that that we're going to see a change later in the week so I need to be looking out for that is that what you're saying that's exactly right. Yeah. So, so we call them flags and it's like, you know, there's a, there's a flag that there might be a change in this corridor for this destination. And then as soon as we can get an official source for that change, we post it. And, and to your point, you know, when we ask people about their trip to be able to inform them, we ask them when they're traveling because very often, you know, the policy today you know, there might be there might be a different policy today than there is a week from now, and the week from now policy has probably been announced. So it's like you know, we give you information specifically for your trip. And actually, on our website, like you know, the primary way people see our product is as an integration on another another company's websites or mobile apps. But you can go to our website and, and look at upcoming changes, which has been really neat to be able to do. <laughs> I, that list is extremely long. Having having looked at the, the amount of changes that have come through in the past couple of weeks with the US reopening and then, you know, what what's going to happen next. What are some of the the trends that you're seeing as far as is there kind of a, a cohesion happening of what various countries are starting to require? Because, you know, six months ago, you know, after the vaccine came out, it was vaccinated travelers, sure, maybe if you were fully vaccinated, but only if you had, you know, 12 negative COVID tests in the past three days, but you had to have one done at a farm that sold apple cider. Uh, you know, is is it starting, are we starting to see a standardization of kind of what countries are, are requiring of, of inbound travelers? I wouldn't necessarily call it standardization, but there have certainly been waves of policies. Like you saw this early on, you know, one country closes borders, other countries realize like, hey, that's something we can do. Let's do that. 
Um, you know, this happened with with testing as well. Uh, but then, you know, some countries went all in on testing. Some stayed kind of relatively open. And then Iceland was the first country. I don't know if they were first announced, but first company, first country to say, you know, you can come in if you're if you're vaccinated. And they had pretty specific language around you know the vaccines that you could use. You could also actually show that you had uh, had a previous infection. There there were all kinds of different forms. But I would say that there were kind of waves and, and trends, certainly. Right now, the, the, the policy to reopen for vaccinated travelers has certainly been a, a big one. This is the U.S. reopening now. India is reopening soon. They're going to have a unique policy, but it's going to you know, fit, this, fit this theme roughly. I would say not necessarily standardization, but definitely the trend is toward reopening for vaccinated travelers. And then, you know, who, who, who knows? Who knows what the trend is next, but but they do happen in waves. Yeah, we're definitely trending in the right direction of countries and even states in some cases reopening. In your opinion, do you see an end to this anytime soon, or are we just never going to return to the way it was, where most people it, they get their visa, or if they don't need a visa, they just get up and go? Or do you think we're ever going to get back to that anytime relatively soon? Well, there are a few things that complicate it. Like, yeah, and like this has been the the couple of years to like to, to, to not make forward looking statements. But one thing that you mentioned earlier, Jason, was the the reciprocal nature that travel restrictions take, which which is not a new thing. It's it's generally been the case that, you know, when it, when a country opens its borders to another country, typically there's a reciprocal opening on the other side too. Uh, you know, you're we're seeing this now with, with EDIAS and, and the EU after the United States has had an ESTA program for a bit now. I think there's probably going to continue to be more and more openness. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of things working toward that. There's kind of outcry from the travel industry generally. You know, there's there's a, a greater there's an increase in comfort. You know, you can see this in increased bookings now. People are more comfortable traveling themselves. One thing I'll say is, you know, we've seen the swings and this is the same way we've seen the trends. We've seen the swings as well, opening, you know, closing down a little, opening up a little bit more, closing down a bit. I think that is certainly going to continue, but I think the trend is is going in the right direction. I, I don't think we're, I guess, like the most most kind of sure thing I would say is I, I don't think we're going back to like the full full lockdown soon. I don't think there's anything that I see that indicates that happening. Are there any trends in the use of of Sherpa that you're seeing either generally speaking or or kind of after the announcement of the US reopening where there's a lot of interest in in certain destinations you know after the US said you can come in was there a big kind of um you know increase in searches based on you know how can I get to the US from from any specific country? Yeah, certainly. Like there has been. I, I don't know. I don't know. If, like if it's not like overnight, you know, that it became the kind of biggest thing for us. But it definitely there was certainly a jump. Absolutely, there was a jump. I've seen usually when places reopen that there is a kind of testing of the waters that happens first. You know, the U.S. is a, is a huge destination, so even like a testing of the waters becomes like a really big thing. But I suspect. That you know, once people see that, you, like, yeah, people can travel to the states. They get into the country, they come back. I think there's going to be a, a, a wider or a larger, a larger trend toward people traveling to the states again. In terms of like an interesting thing for usage of our product over this period, generally, our product pre-COVID was used very specifically after someone had booked a trip. Where it's like, hey, you know, I, I as a traveler know that I want to go do a trip to Tanzania. I'm going to book that trip. And then after that trip, I'm going to figure out what I need. You know, that was so our product was very often used post booking ancillary pages, uh, manage my booking type pages, just from like an airline's perspective. Now our product is used much earlier in the traveler journey. So it's used in discovery, used like, you know, in flow basically along the whole line. And then Jason, one of your earlier points, also used day of travel to say like, hey, you know, this, <laughs> the policies have changed. You know, here's what you need today. And, you know, we've, we've helped you kind of figure that out. So, that's, that's, so usage of our product has increased 
significantly. And it's not just like, you know, the fact that we were out work with, you know, many of the world's largest travel companies, AA, Expedia, you know, many more. It's that the product is used really across the traveler journey. The usage to me is interesting because it, it seems like you could now I, I know a lot of people when after they got vaccinated could where can I go? You know, that, that it was I need to go somewhere. Where can I go? So it's kind of like this speculative, you know. I, I have a visa, you know, where, where can I get basically my COVID visa and, and go places? So, it, it doesn't surprise me to hear that people are, are using Sherpa kind of earlier on in the booking process. Have you found something that you're moving towards now kind of with the experience of not changing what you offer, but kind of adding a huge chunk to the kind of work that you do? Is there anything else that you're looking at now going, oh, okay, we could we could probably, you know, filter this in to make that part of the make that an easier part of the travel experience? Yeah, definitely. So I, I spoke about the shift that has happened over the last year and a half, which is the use earlier in the travel journey. Looking forward for us, you know, this work that we're doing for later in the travel journey as well, which I've already kind of alluded to, which is, you know, our product will tell you, yeah, it's like, you know, if you feel like you've been stuck for the last year and a half and you want to go somewhere, we'll, we'll kind of tell you what the world looks like in terms of openness. We have a, we have a map interface that does this and you know, you can just kind of shop around and see what's there. Another major piece is that, you know, preparation for travel, that that actual kind of day of travel experience, the the experience when, you know, great, you know, this country is open now, I can book my trip, I book my trip, things change, they shut down, you know, what do I do? That other that part of the experience, now that people are traveling in earnest, <laughs> it becomes super important. And you know, we don't deal with the the rebooking, but that that trigger of you know, hey, you, know, you can't do this trip right now anymore. That, that's another thing that I, I think our product is going to be super useful for. And then in the long term, we want to make international travel truly seamless. You know, we want to make international trips as easy as domestic trips. You know, you just kind of figure out where you want to go, and Sherpa kind of figures everything out in the background. That's our long-term vision. I, I like to say that you know, COVID has been a really great opportunity for us to show that we can help and make a really big difference. And I think it's helped us prove that this is a part of the travel journey that can be solved, and that I think I think we're doing it the right way. We've been chatting with Max Tremaine, who is the co-founder and CEO of Sherpa, a company that has, I think, really found its stride helping people navigate uh, COVID restrictions and making crossing borders a bit easier and and more seamless. Uh, Max, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks a lot, Ian. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Max. Welcome back. We have some more fun stuff to get through. This is, I guess, the back third of the show. We will call it the good news show, uh, the, yeah, the good news we, portion we, of the show. We have no bad uh, news. news. And we'll start with uh, a really cool thing that happened this week to commemorate the the ability of vaccinated travelers to fly from the UK to the US uh, without any type of quarantine or restrictions other than uh, being vaccinated. The finally welcome back. Yes, British Airways and Virgin Atlantic decided that they were going to celebrate with a parallel uh, takeoff from runways two seven left and two seven right at Heathrow Airport. Uh, a very cool thing. They took off at exactly the same time. Uh, began their takeoff rolls. Took off at exactly the same time. Virgin took a slightly more southern route uh, across the Atlantic and beat British Airways. Not that it was a race or anything, but they 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 beat them hmm. by uh, seven minutes or so. Yeah. I mean, we, we talked about this a, a few weeks ago when we picked up on the, the fight. But we didn't know filed. we were talking about we didn't, yeah, yeah, we didn't know. We didn't know that uh, BA and, and Virgin, two airlines who, let's face it, don't like each other and don't work with each other, liked each other and worked with each other in this instance because it was really kind of a a, a very awesome thing to see that these two airlines would work together on such a momentous occasion. Um, Finally, uh, people can come back into the US. And I think they absolutely 
nailed their departure. I don't think if they had done this a thousand more times that they could have had those takeoff rolls be any more perfect and really the procedure that they they went through to get that done. There's a great post that we'll put in the show notes from Nats um, about the the backstory behind that and some very unusual ATC chatter on how they basically issued uh, takeoff clearance without actually having the aircraft take off. Right. It was really cool. It was really cool. So yeah, we'll put that link to the show notes and, and you can just listen to it yourself um, because it's uh, it's it's quite good and yeah. and unique. Yeah, for sure. double double departures. Uh, it, it's the same thing they tried to do with the seven four seven final flights, yeah, but it was too foggy and they didn't work. do it. But this time it worked. They did it via Virgin. Got into JFK a little bit quicker than BA, and it wasn't a race, but something tells me. Uh, the flight crews may have had uh, a steak yeah. dinner riding on this one. <laughs> Jason, yes, we have some interesting concept aircraft from Embraer, and and they are very pretty to look at. Yes, emphasis on concept because these are these are not real. These are not and something. <laughs> yeah, and look at this is not something Embraer is actually going to produce. But basically, they put out yet, yet, like the, yet, but kind of like the DOT where they put together a, a bunch of concepts of saying. If technology progresses at the rate that we think it will, here's the aircraft that we think we could possibly build, not that we're going to build them, by this year. And there are four of them. They're the Energia family, I guess, if I'm pronouncing that right. But there are four specific and different technologically based aircraft. The first one, the Energia Hybrid, the Jet A slash SAF, so that's traditional jet fuel blended with uh, ore sustainable aviation fuel could do either or and hybrid electric. So that aircraft would only seat nine people, possible flight range of 900 nautical miles and might be ready by 2030. So the technology would be ready by 2030. Next up is the Energia Electric. It's fully electric, only 200 miles, nine passengers, possibly by 2035. So their Embraer seems kind of pessimistic on uh, an electric future for aircraft saying that even by 2035 with the way battery technology is progressing, we're not going to be able to do much with that by 2035. Next up, the Energia H2 fuel cell hydrogen powered aircraft, 200 nautical miles. It bumps it up to 19 whole passengers, maybe again by 2035. And the last one, the furthest out, the Energia H2 gas turbine Sustainable aviation fuel or hydrogen-powered aircraft, 350 or 500 nautical miles, 35 to 50 passengers, and may be ready by 2040. That one seems the most probable, I guess, to, to actually make it, but that's also the furthest out by 2040. Really puts into perspective that uh, publication from the DOT that here we have a major airframer saying that by by 2040, maybe possibly we can get an aircraft to fly up to 500 miles with 50 passengers. That's not much, is it? it it's not much, and and you know I, I think these are you know these are all spec'd on where technology will be at certain points in the future, and not to come back to it too hard, but I, I think a lot of these are, are more pessimistic than is perhaps warranted in, in the technology progression. But I, I also understand you don't want to you don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. Uh, so certainly they're they're going that route. But they're interesting concepts. I, I actually think you know, the, like you said, the 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 largest one is most likely to to what we'll see. But I, I think given Embraer's you know focus on on smaller aircraft with with a lighter passenger load, you know, in the in the private sec- segment, that we could see those as well. And that would be a really interesting thing to see, you know, smaller, lighter, electric powered aircraft. And and I think that 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 aren't you know that aren't uh, you know EV tolls. Uh, so I, I think that would be that would be something to see. Yeah, well, we'll we'll see. But maybe next week there's a massive change in how batteries work, and hey, suddenly we can power an A350 on on fully on batteries. Who knows? I mean, that would be cool. That'd be great. M- maybe not next week. No, the week after for sure. 
going from electric and hydrogen and all of that fun stuff back completely the opposite way. Qantas has brought its first A380 back to Australia. <laughs> Couldn't be any farther from what we just talked about. VHOQB is back in Australia. It was at the beginning of the pandemic stored in Los Angeles, went from Los Angeles to Dresden last August or, or this August, a few months ago for the cabin refit it has now the new uh, Qantas A380 cabin, and it will re-enter service sometime early next year. Fantastic. Uh, so there you I go. I love A380s, however many few are actually left in the world. There, there's just, just a few more. This week, going back to a bit to a little bit more sustainable stuff uh, or sustainability-focused things, Airbus completed its first fellow fly A350 flight across the ocean. They flew from Toulouse to Montreal with two A350s, the A350-900, the very first A350, MSN-001, and the A350-1000 in trail flying in their fellow fly configuration, which... Uh, Think flock of birds. One is in front, one flies behind, slightly offset in order to take advantage of the lead aircraft's uh, wig turbulence to, to reduce fuel consumption. Airbus says that it's uh, more than 5% is the improvement in fuel consumption for the following aircraft. So, a big deal as far as operating in transatlantic airspace, which is very regimented, so great that they could do that, and cool to see that they're uh, you know kind of progressing with some of these ideas that that could lead to improvement without you know huge leaps in technology. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into that between the the systems on board the aircraft and air traffic control and get everything to to sync up. But again, this is one of those things that like a, like that DOT chart that will be at the very top of the chart making the least amount of impact, but it's something that adds up over time. You have enough right. of flights in the world doing this and 5% over you know, maybe 100 flights a day. That's a big savings. Exactly. And also, it just looks cool. It looks cool. The, we'll, put the, we'll put the link to the video in the show notes. Um, that's, uh, that's something you're, you're going to want to see. Okay. These last two things. One, I did not see coming at all. I don't think anyone And the next did. one- I just want to see over and over and over again. So, so Jason, tell me more about the Albatross. The Albatross, what a fun aircraft. An amphibious aircraft produced by Grumman called the uh, – technically the, the G – what will be uh, developed will be the G-111T Albatross variant. Basically, there is a company out there that wants to re-engine the Grumman Albatross, which is – Produced between 1949 and 1966, only 461 were ever built. But it, it's quite a unique and capable aircraft, one that would be great for firefighting purposes these days. But specifically, the, the, the company says it could be for combi passenger cargo, aero medevac, search and rescue, all sorts of fun things. But they want to put turboprops to replace the nine-cylinder radial piston engines that are currently on these aircraft. And they would replace it by Pratt & Whitney uh, PT-6A-67F turboprop engines. So that's just kind of out of nowhere, but that would be awesome to see modern engines it. on an aircraft like this. I, I've been on a Grumman uh, Albatross. That There used to be one operated by the oh, yeah, right, right, right. company Row 44 who became – Global Eagle, and then they used it as their in-flight Wi-Fi test aircraft because here's a little tidbit of information. They said the, the fuselage of the Albatross was actually the same exact dimensions as a 737. So it made it a great aircraft to test things that you would put on top of a 737. But this huh. is really kind of came out of nowhere. I, I love it. And I, I hope it succeeds and I can't wait to see at least one of them because hopefully they get to do a test and I can't wait to see it. And, and I would love to fly in it. So if you're thinking about doing this and you're listening to the podcast, we would love to come join you. Yes. Oh, and the company doing that is, is Amphibian Aerospace Industries, by the way. They probably deserve their name shouted out. Yeah. There you go. Last but certainly not least, Jason and I are both suckers for a good – aircraft promo video. And and Air France is really good at these. I think they've outdone themselves this time. 
Yes. The A2 2300s that they recently took delivery of, they did an air-to-air 8K high frame rate video over the the coast of France, I think. Over um, they, they took off from Bordeaux and they did some really spectacular air-to-air photography over the coastline. Um, it's a one-minute, 57-second YouTube video. I dare you to watch it only once. <laughs> it's not going to happen. You can't. It's you have to happen. watch it at least three times. It's it's really good. It's it's really very good. And, and you learn – the thing I like about these videos is that they look very nice. But also, you kind of learn about the aircraft in ways that you can't from anything besides viewing the aircraft very close up in high definition in flight from another aircraft. And, and you can't do that anywhere else. I mean, the closest you can get to, to another aircraft is maybe landing in parallel at certain airports around the world. But with these videos, you get to see things and angles and directions and things you, you never get to see otherwise. And watching this video, you realize just how massive the bypass is on these engines. I mean, you know, you see the sun shining through and you go, wow. Yeah, there's that one shot in particular because they, they shot this sequence just before sunset. When you actually do the, the playback on, on Flight Radar 24, you can actually see the, the different gradients of sunset coming in. And the, the bypass in these engines with the sun setting behind it is just like, there's almost nothing in these engines. No. I, I, I know there's mean, a lot in there, but there is far less than there used to be. Yeah, well, I mean, well, the, the fans just got so much bigger. But yeah, it, it's a great video. Of course, link in the show notes. And please, uh, please watch and enjoy if you like those sorts of things. And, and if you want do, the we'll, extended cut, tell Air France because I'm <laughs> yeah, sure there is hours more footage laying oh, around sure. somewhere. Sure. On that note, we will call this episode 137 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here with what I thought was a very cheery and sunshine filled. Jason Rabino, sorry, I, I missed the cue again. That didn't sound right. <laughs> we'll get it one day. Thank you so much for listening. If you did like the show and you thought that we weren't grumpy, or maybe you thought we were grumpy and you like that, please leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. It helps other people find the podcast. We read these things. And so if you have constructive criticism or, or uh, just uh, want to call Jason grumpy, by all means, please do that. If you've got questions, comments, anything like that, please email us, podcast at fr24.com. And if you've made it this far and you think that, hey, I would be a good guest or I know a good guest for this podcast, email us podcast at fr24.com and tell us why you want to come and join us on the podcast. We'd be uh, happy to have you if you think that the listeners would like it as well. So on that note, thank you so much for listening to episode 137. We will see you next week. (music) 